The face of Latina professionals propels women of color to reach their highest potential through education, community, and self-development. Join us as we come together to provide a platform for Latina voices to connect and be heard on the Face of Latina Professionals podcast. How you guys doing? I'm Tony Arce. Welcome to the Face of Latina Professionals podcast. Today I'm joined by the founder of Ubuntu Strategies, Jasmine Hernandez. Jasmine, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. No, what a what an amazing conversation we've had so far. Mm-hmm. I'm really uh, grateful for you, and I can just tell that this is going to blossom into something uh, very beautiful here, and being part of our community and just being an inspiration to others. So why don't we start by telling us where you're from originally? Sure. So I was born and raised in Chicago, um, near Pulaski and Armitage, Hermosa, or near Humble Park. Um, I like to say Logan Square before it was Logan Square. Yeah, true, right? <laughs> um, decided at that point to then um, go to school in Iowa. So really grateful for having attended Noble, which is a network of charter schools in Chicago. Yep. Um, they really supported my transition from high school to college, being first generation Um, to navigate that, um, in addition to just ensuring that I was provided the most opportunities with which institution I went to, and then supported me after through alumni counseling and helping me choose my major. So I studied biology and environmental studies with a focus in education. So I was really passionate at the time to, and still am, um, to support students that looked like me and that transition and really looking at the data around matriculation versus persistence and the things that contribute to first-generation students being able to sustain in college, whether it's financial or cultural, um, just navigating the system. And so at that point pivoted to come back to Noble, fortunately um, supported as a, a assistant dean of students at first. Wow. And then... Yeah, then I, I proceeded into an alumni counselor role during that work. And so that was the, the foundation of, of my career. And then here I am. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, as far as being Latina, you're Puerto Rican. Yes. So both parents are, are Puerto Rican mm-hmm. and, and grown up in this area. I mean, that's, I mean, that's where Puerto yeah. Ricans are, right? Tell me a little bit about that and just how, like, when did you first hear that term Latina? How, what did it mean to you? Because it's mm. something that when you're Puerto Rican, you're Puerto Rican, right? You're right. not Latina, Mexican, you're Mexican. Mm-hmm. But but being in Chicago and being in the United States, it's a term we came up with for those people, women of Latin America, right? Yeah. So when did you first hear about it? How did you identify with it? And how is that now that that term changed for you over the years? Yeah, well, that's, whew, that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, so we'll start off from the beginning. So Um, My parents were born and raised in the U.S. My grandmother came from Puerto Rico um, when her daughters were young, at least the oldest, and the rest were born here. And so I've actually felt um, almost this disconnect with being Latina and and being able to identify as Puerto Rican because my mom now has still yet never gone to Puerto Rico. Mm. And I went for the first time in 2021. Wow. And it was truly a life-changing experience to see this island that my family has always spoken about that I've never been able to see, that I've only seen on a map, um, and just think about like the the spaces where my grandmother once upon a time walked around and the, the disconnect that our family has always had with this mentality of we're now in the United States and we don't really talk about Puerto Rico and we don't go there because that doesn't belong to us anymore. And so... I think the evolution of the word Latina um, throughout my life has just really shifted from something that has felt almost foreign to then something that felt 
almost icky when I was in college. I went to school in, in Iowa, and there weren't a lot of Latinas. And I remember people saying, like, oh, you're Latina, you're really spicy, or you're very exotic. Um, and it was this term that was almost foreign and really enticing, but really frustrated me. And I didn't have the words <laughs> or the skills necessarily to navigate that. So now it being something that I really appreciate and, and really acknowledge the the load that comes with that word and, and what it means, whether you're Puerto Rican or Mexican. Um, a, a lot of my friends growing up were Mexican. And so I think even the, the understanding that there are so many Latinas in so many countries and cultures and that being Latina does not mean or represent just one thing. And it is more of that. I think it's that identity of being mm-hmm. and how, how does the outside world refer to those mm-hmm. that come from Spanish-speaking Latin American countries. And it's not even just Spanish-speaking, right? Because mm-hmm. you can Brazilian and speak Portuguese and, and be right. considered Latina. So like, so now it seems you're, you're very much a champion of that, right? And that's uh, a big part of that. And one of the things that we had talked about before is just how Latinas are really the most progressive subculture in terms of education. Even. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing that, right? Yeah. What have you noticed as a change of, of being able to more so identify that? And do you still feel some of those ways about, um, like I I think it's it's almost it's necessary right to be able to create a community around that but then on the other aspect of it it can be a little bit alienating because then you're separating yourself from the rest of society which is what everyone wants to feel is accepted right mm-hmm. how, how how is how do you see that kind of juxtaposition now between um separation se- segregation and and mm-hmm. acceptance into the mainstream society yeah you know the one thing with being not only Latina, but Puerto Rican, is that I feel like there's often this tension and there's this this push and pull between the Puerto Ricans that are born on the island versus the ones that are born in the United States. And this feeling of almost not being Puerto Rican enough. And I, I, I've always laughed with my family because my mom intentionally spoke Spanish around me growing up and taught me Spanish because a lot of people, especially my younger cousins, didn't speak Spanish. And the irony is that I ended up losing my Spanish because I wasn't Mm. utilizing it. And in high school, a lot of my friends were Mexican and speaking Spanish. And I struggled to kind of understand and would pick up words here and there. And it wasn't until, ironically enough, I got to Iowa where I was surrounded by this culture of of Latinas being enticing and, and spicy and whatever else that... I thought, what is the narrative that I also want to have around being Puerto Rican? I want to speak Spanish and I want to understand our culture. And that started with me then um, traveling to Guatemala and I took a Spanish class down there. Oh, no way. Yeah. And it it was a great experience because it allowed me to tap into the Spanish that I know I wanted to learn and really tighten it up, but then learn more about other Latinos and, and what are the differences between the way Guatemalans approach even things like food and their culture and mentality versus what I had experienced. And so I think that first layer is the the alienation between Puerto Ricans and that competition. The second component, I think, you know, the the thing right now, and, and not to get political or anything, but thinking about the environment and the world that we live in right now as well, um, and what are some of the perspectives that people have around Latinos in general, right? You, you think about people sort of categorizing all Latinos into one box and saying, you all are the same. You all speak Spanish. Right. <laughs> um, even the way you look and and for myself like people have looked at me and in some 
folks immediately say, you're Puerto Rican, I can see it, especially when my hair is curly. I have other people that think I'm biracial, but there's always this feeling, and I think many cultures experience this, of always having people guess who you are and try to put you in this box of who you should be when it's really like, at the very basis, can we just talk about the fact that I'm human and just connect on that level? And so as I think about my Latina culture and some of the things that I've experienced around that, that was really the spearhead for the word Ubuntu and using that as the business name because it's representative of how I approach the business um, and just at the very basis of all things, human connection being the focus as opposed to this label. And I love that because maybe you can elaborate on the name of it and we'll get into what you do, right? But uh, it it really, it it stems from community Mm -hmm. and and the way that we approach community and being there for one another, right? Mm -hmm. What is it that drew you to the name and that kind of these experiences that you've had that shaped you into the person and woman you are today, but more so uh, to be able to well, it looks like your your background even was very different doing uh, real estate development within data centers, right? Mm-hmm. And here you are doing uh, entrepreneurship on your mm-hmm. own. And tell me a little bit about that, how that all, all those experiences led you to become one, an entrepreneur, but two, in the space that you're in, um, helping others uh, through their marketing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I started off my career in education and after being at Noble, I experienced a lot of my students in situations that I felt I couldn't really help the way I wanted to. So students being in my office hours until 10 o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night, sharing that their homes were a crime scene or that their parents never picked them up or that they were waiting for that one friend to get out of soccer practice so they can go home with them because they're couch surfing. And of course, you you know there are restrictions. You sign the papers. You can't do certain things. And my heart shifted, and I decided to go into nonprofit. And at the time, I was really fortunate to have this mentor, Sol Flores, who was the executive director of an organization called La Casa Norte. And it was right around my the area that I grew up at. It was, again, ironic because I went to school in Iowa and then moved to Wheeling, and my parents had this running joke of, your community is going to call you back. I was like, I am leaving Chicago. I'm going to pivot. And then I ended up five minutes away from where I grew up doing work (laughs) at this organization. But nonetheless, I was fortunate to have soul because I told her, I I know what you do. They serve youth and families confronting homelessness. I want to support, but I have no experience in this. Um, and she took a chance on me, and I was fortunate. The director at the time was like, I think I'm high-functioning. Let's jump into fundraising development, specifically um, fundraising and marketing. So I did that for about three years, and it was one heck of a learning curve for me. And, I bet. Um, at the time, 23, and also trying to navigate not only professionalism, but time management and organization. <laughs> but I really loved the work, and I had a, such a passion for it that – I decided between development, so fundraising and marketing, if you had to choose which one, which one would it be? And I went with marketing because I appreciate the storytelling. And I think there's so much beauty in marketing because it's being able to say, what is the story and how do we curate it in a way where we get other people interested and involved to then take action? So specifically for a nonprofit, it's to volunteer, to donate, to do something. And I continued that trajectory until I hit entrepreneurship in 2018, really by the chance of COVID, working with a prior agency. And at that point, jumped full in and spoke to the person, the CEO, and started off in business development, then jumped into marketing manager, director of of, um, marketing director, and realized that 
one of the biggest challenges which with how I have always worked has been the creativity and having that autonomy. Um, and we talked earlier about ADD and that mm-hmm. being something that um, just discovering what that meant in the way I think. And I've always called it almost like a superpower for myself. Um, which it really is. Yeah, yeah truthfully. Um, I've learned that entrepreneurship just works for me. It, it allows me to have an idea and have the autonomy to bring it to life, um, to hold myself accountable without someone else, without feeling like someone else is breathing down my neck. Um, and it takes away some pressure, but puts a different level of pressure on you. Um, and I fell in love. And I feel like ever since then, I, I've not gone back and I don't plan on going back anytime soon. No, and I wouldn't want you to. You're, you know, you're on a rocket ship. Like you're headed towards uh, much success. I see it. It's very clear. And on that, what would um, you tell other Latinas who, you know, see see themselves in that situation or, you know, identify with, you know, your story in that regard where that, that that's something they've considered, right? Entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a scary thing. And one of the things you had mentioned in our uh, initial conversation was just how entrepreneurship entrepreneurship seems very sexy, you know, from the outside mm-hmm. looking in, but that it's a struggle, you know, in the beginning. And, mm-hmm. and to go through that, it's something that can really put people off, especially when, you know, and, and I think most Latin cultures, it's very like fear driven, right? Mm-hmm. That, hey, don't do this and look at the, the risks and you know, go towards the kind of, um, I don't want to say guaranteed path, but the path that is less scary, mm-hmm. right? What, what, what would you tell um, those Latinas listening to, who are interested, but are held back by those fears? Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think the biggest thing that I've always gone or that I've always done is lead with my heart. And so whenever I have been in a role that I feel no longer serves what the impact I want to have in this world, and I've I've always thought about like, what will your legacy be? Um, If it no longer aligns, I've shifted. And so in every single position, but the one thing I will say, there have been times I left to Guatemala uh, during 2016. And when I came back, I had no job, no money, no apartment. Um, I had a similar situation when I moved to Nashville and then I came back. And in both of those spaces, my family was like, just get a job, like get a job so that you can start doing something again. And my go-to was, no, I'm not just going to get any job. It needs to be the job. They're like, what does that even mean? I don't know. But my heart will tell me once I get it because of the work and because of the people. And it's led me to be in spaces where I second guess and I'm like, let me just get something to get it. But I've never wanted to do that because you need to wake up. My my philosophy is that you need to wake up every day and be happy with not only the person that you are, but the work that you're doing and how you're driving your life. So when it comes to entrepreneurship, all of that to be said, if if anyone feels like they want to do this and fear is the thing that's stopping them, um, you're, you're going to live in fear your whole life then. That's the reality. Like fear never stops. <laughs> fear, fear is even now. Like the the business is up and running, and I've been really blessed to have success up until this point, and I hope that that continues. And there's still challenges daily around hiring and who to hire and when. And there's always going to be those questions, but it's really about betting on yourself and betting on your life's work, and. You know, even now my family, they laughed and they're like, you're supposed to get a job that's going to provide like you have no health insurance. I'm like, I'm fine. (laughs) They're like, you don't have sustainability. I'm like, I will. 
Um, even my significant other, you know, I'm really grateful. He's my biggest cheerleader and so extremely supportive. But even in the beginning, when I pivoted from the real estate development, which was still a very entrepreneurial role, um, he's like, completely by yourself? I'm like, I think I'm going to do this. He's like, okay, I, yep. And had very little words for the first couple of months. And what he was not trying to do was scare me. And he was not trying to lead the same way that my family was leading. Remember, I told my dad, and he's like, are you crazy? You're kidding me, right? Um, so you're going to have all of that, and I think it's the norm. And part of being Latina, especially when you come from you know traditional background and, and that mentality, you really just have to prove to your family, just like you have to prove to the rest of the world, and you just have to be okay with that sometimes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, I mean, it's 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 great advice, and it's very uh, – it's so true, and it's, it's also – what I've come to realize it, you know, on, as an entrepreneur is that you share those things in common with other successful entrepreneurs, that that is part of the journey, that without it, it everyone will be doing it. And it'd just be easy, like you said, Absolutely. to be sexy, right? And and another thing that um, you, you, again, talked about, but really the, the, the those things that you were programmed with or that those other fears, like as you're saying, even with your parents, right? But that the headspace that you were in of expecting things to go wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little about that mentality that is very commonly referred to or seen as imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. That How did you identify that first off? And then two, what were those steps that you took to overcome that? Mm. You know, I think one of the first times that I was made aware that I experienced imposter syndrome was in college. And it was really, so I was always that student in the class, at least in high school, where all of my friends were like the top 10 of the class. Mm. And I used to admire them. I'd be like, they're so smart. And here I am having to work a lot harder to get the same grades that they're getting. And now pivoting into college, I'm seeing some of those students drop out of college. And I'm still there. And so I experienced a moment where I'm like, if my friends who are some of the smartest in in the class when I was at Pritzker aren't in college, then maybe I shouldn't be here either. Maybe I'm not smart enough and something's wrong. And the college is going to find out at some point that I'm like fake or that mm. I'm not cut out for this. Um, wow, that's that's heavy. Yeah. And I remember calling my, my college counselor. This is why I think even now I, I have so much appreciation for Noble because of the resources that it brought me. I, I called my college counselor. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to do Can I do this? Like, I'm struggling. Like, I have – Cornell has a one course at a time. So that that was also a challenge. You take one class for three and a half weeks. Oh, no way. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that time frame, you then take a test. You write a paper. You give a presentation. You have a four-day break, which is called block break. And then you take another class. And so I was set up, I was a biology environmental, as I mentioned, I had science classes back to back, which were really rigorous. And I remember telling her, I don't think I can do this. This is heavy. I have class four hours a day and then I'm in lab. And I had all these thoughts where it wasn't called imposter syndrome. She was like, do you want to graduate? And, well, yes. She's like, okay, then graduate. And she was very black and white. And she gave, she always gave everyone <laughs> the news the way like tough love and it's tough love yeah. yeah she was very like okay if you want to do it then just do it it's not yeah. that serious you're overthinking but I was able to really discover the word imposter syndrome I want to say around 2017 so not too long ago either I had a mentor that just spoke to it and then I started reading more about the imposter syndrome institute and the percentage of people that experience this and how it's prevalent in certain cultures and the why and so 
to your question around the things that I've done, I actually, I don't always leverage social media, ironically enough, as someone who <laughs> leads marketing. But when I do share things, it's just tidbits of what have I experienced and what has helped me in hopes of just giving advice or support to others. And it's really writing down the worst thing that could happen in every situation when it's even now with having launched the business. What is the worst thing that could happen? Well, I don't get any clients or I get clients and I fail and they leave or you hire the wrong people, right? And the, when you start to write that down and you start to go through these different scenarios, it makes it less scary and it makes you realize that the very next step after that is just starting over. Um, and it really takes out, I think, a lot of the mystery and a lot of the the questioning and the words of you telling yourself that you're either not good enough or you're not equipped to take that next step. Wow, great. I mean, that's that's amazing. Like, and in, in to know that you've gone through this in, in, in such a, almost like a, a very pragmatic way, right? Of like evaluating it, considering it, looking at your life. I really do like love your approach uh, on all of this. Now, I mean, as mentorship is a big part, and you mentioned mm. you know, having a mentor, but it's also that you want to be a mentor, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you have. What, how do you approach that knowing that you know these things are, are cyclical there, there's something that's that is part of our, our culture and communities mm-hmm. you know what yeah what's that approach you take when you're mentoring someone that you see a lot of yourself from before in them mm-hmm. like how do you start that so that they're not going through those same pitfalls mm-hmm. from the beginning yeah I think you hit on something right now how do you approach it so that they don't make the same or have the same experience right I think with any mentorship, people are going to take it or leave it. And you'll have a good amount of people that you mentor that will not take action, but you have a lot that also will. My goal with mentorship is that exactly. I knew the hoops I had to jump through per se. I want to mentor you and give you that feedback so that you don't have to. Um, So that, you know, wherever I am by the time I'm 35, if that is the path you want to take, you can get there five years earlier, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Or or, so that you can accomplish what you want to accomplish in a quicker amount of time. When I'm mentoring someone, it's a happy median, though, because you also don't want to put yourself in a position where you're high and mighty and you're like, this is my experience. This will be your experience because that's not truth. It's really just sharing your experience and then allowing them to take what they see and what they feel is going to be valuable and then implementing it in their life. I think I've learned that from all of my mentors. I've been very, very blessed to have mentors that have invested so much time and energy into sharing their experiences, lending an ear. Um, I used to joke with one of my my mentor is Michelle Mackie. She runs a PR firm. And she would have these 30-minute meetings with me, and I would come prepared with a list of questions, and we would knock them out. I'd be like, okay, thanks. That was the end of the meeting. And I would always joke, and then I'd be like, all right, invoice me when I'm like, when I when I can afford you. <laughs> <laughs> and even to this day, like she's still one of my biggest cheerleaders. But the the thing is, she's never said this is how you should do it. She's merely just given her experience. And I think that's really the value in mentorship. It's not someone who is going to have all the answers, who's going to tell you what that next step is, who is going to write your life out for you. It's just what have what has happened to you when you've taken the step and then taking that information and running with it. And, and as I'm hearing that too, it's it, it I think you're right. You're very right. And, and oftentimes we think as mentorship as being like this coach who tells you what to do and how to do it. And, and it removes that element of like free thinking. Right. And, and even feeling like you can make mistakes. And I think really as I'm hearing it uh, and it's kind of like more of an epiphany for me is 
more so being there for for the mentee as they make mistakes, mm-hmm. right? And the thing that comes to mind as you're saying that you know not to make the same mistakes is that uh, a smart person learns from their mistakes, but a wise person learns from other people's mistakes. And so, I mean, that that's a that's a breath of fresh air too to to for me because it takes a lot of that responsibility off of saying you know I have to have all the answers as a mentor and you know telling you what to do, but rather just being there and supporting you and, and, and offering you my life experience and saying, you know, do with it what you will. But ultimately, you're going to do with it what you will. And I can't get upset about it, but rather just be there and be supportive of it. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that the thing to add about mentorship as well, and, and that's part of the stigma that I really try to break down when I have these conversations. It's for the longest time I used to think as my mentors, and I have two mentors now, Rebecca and Craig Huffman, and they Rebecca has been my mentor no way. on a personal life. Yeah. That's crazy. And then El Stefania interviewed her. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah. So you know Rebecca. Yeah, you, she's very this well. yeah. dynamic, like incredibly accomplished woman. Um, funny enough, since, since you know Rebecca, you appreciate this because Shout out to Rebecca. Yeah, Rebecca. <laughs> Shout out. Truly has changed not only my life, but my perspective on so many things. So funny enough, I met Rebecca when I was a teenager. So I was uh, 17, maybe just 18, having graduated. And I was a part of this group called Ed Reform Alumni. And the goal was going to the Board of Education and just asking for equal funding on charter schools. It's a controversial topic. I get it. The point, though, is that Rebecca came to speak to the group of young ladies who were going to the board and just coach us. How do you stand up straight? What are you going to say? Let's walk through public speaking. And she at the time was the first Latina that I had seen that walked into a room with such confidence and came and did the work and coached us and was stunning. Like she's just so beautiful Mm -hmm. and then just walked out. Like I did my job. You're good. Great. You're going to kick butt. Okay. I'm out. I have other stuff to do. And it was this energy that I had never experienced before. At the time I never had a Latina teacher. I did not have a mentor, 18 year old Jasmine. And I remember seeing her and being like, I want to, I want to be like her. Like, I want to just, like, I want to get stuff done and just have this sense of, like, presence. And so full circle moments, I I remember following Rebecca on social media. This was before she was this TikTok star that she is now. And it wasn't until I was actually an entrepreneur where her husband, who was running a business, saw that I was posting about marketing and entrepreneurship. He's like, I didn't know you do marketing. Um, I, I have this potential opportunity. We spoke And then he introduced me to Rebecca and I was like, I don't think you remember me, but I remember you. Like you have been this person in my life. You were the first Latina. The next person was Sol Flores, my other mentor that I saw and I knew I wanted to be like. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, there there are people that come into your life um, and you think they're only there for a second and then you don't understand the vastness of how they're going to impact your the rest of your life. And now she's she's still my mentor. She's one of my closest friends. She was my client at one point as she wow. was building her TikTok journey. And so all of that to be said between her and Craig, um, the thing that they have both taught me is that, you know, you have mentors like that who have vast life experience who are going to really shape that trajectory. But then there's peer mentorship. And there's this mentorship where you know, similarly, you don't have all of the answers, you're just sharing your experience, and you're doing it on a path together. And I think there's so much power in that kind of mentorship. And I don't think enough of it happens, because we're going on journeys with people who are either our age or or a similar path. 
And there's either a sense of embarrassment where you don't want to share and be vulnerable about what you're experiencing, or there's competition. Let's call it what it is. You don't want that person to get to the end of the line before you do. And crabs in a bucket analogy, right? Yeah. 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 Where once you realize that that, and it has to be synergistic, of course, but once that develops, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and so, yes, all, all of the things on mentorship. Well, it makes a lot of sense now why you guys were sitting each other at <laughs> Stefania's, uh, you know, um, uh, fashion show. So that's, that's what a beautiful story. And thank you for sharing that. Um, how, for those listening, how can people find you, follow you, connect with you on social and online? Um, yeah. So um, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, of course, under my name. Um, I do have my personal social media. It's Jay Hernandez. Uh, period chai on instagram and then my company does have an instagram ubuntu strategies that we're developing and, and still branding but a lot of posts around the new projects we've been up to the clients that we've had and all of the work around just building that human connection between marketing and events beautiful so happy to have you here thank you for being on our podcast but more importantly being a part of our community and being that uh you know inspiration and mentor for for a lot of other latinas i'm sure now and to come so thank you thank you tony i appreciate it